Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we look at the year 1849. That was the year of a devastating cholera epidemic and the great riverfront fire that raised much of the St. Louis riverfront. These events and others are detailed in author, author Christopher Allen Gordon's new book titled Fire, Pestilence, and Death, St. Louis, 1849. He's the director of library and collections with the Missouri Historical Society. Christopher Allen Gordon, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let me tell you, I really enjoyed the book. As a history major in college and with the Society for 15 years, it must have been a lot of fun to dig through all that information. It was. It was, it was a whole lot of fun. Uh, and it was years of finding some you know, very fascinating letters, very emotional letters, diaries, uh, going through newspapers. Uh, one of the things that was uh, probably the most fun in researching this book is I was able to go through the 1849 St. Louis uh, Missouri Republican day by day, mm-hmm. and you you really get the feel of the times. Uh, you begin like you uh, know the city, you know the people. Uh, it's a very intimate way of of uh, looking at history and. Uh, uh, by the time the book was finished, I, I felt like these people were my relatives <laughs> for the most part. You know, that's the feeling one gets in reading the book, you know, really familiarity with uh, what the place was like. And you're still finding material. You're going to you're have to write another book. I know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm finding new letters and, and uh, new documents all the time and, and uh, thinking, oh, why didn't I include this? You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just the way it goes, though. Yeah. Well, let's set the stage. What was St. Louis like in 1849? Well, it was a time when really the entire country was going through a, a lot of transition. Uh, and this was brought about by, you know, the Industrial Revolution is, is growing in the country. Uh, immigrants are just pouring into the United States uh, from Europe. And uh, this was really causing a lot of cultural change and, you know, the society is becoming much more mobile. And St. Louis, as it sits on the river near the confluence of the two great rivers, was really a funnel. I mean, all – so many of these people were coming through St. Louis and the town had essentially been for some 60 years more or less a frontier town. And now, you know, all these – uh, tens of thousands of people are pouring through, uh, and many of them are, are settling here. And it was a, a great burden on the city. Uh, and so you would have um, all these masses of people trying to find housing, and you know the city is trying to deal with uh, infrastructure problems. The streets were horrible. You know they were they were muddy when it rained. They were horribly dusty when it dried. And when it was dry, and you know there was barely any sewer systems uh, and things like that. Um, one of the things that was most shocking is when you go through the letters and go through the newspapers mm-hmm. and so forth. How many times people talk about how filthy the city was? Yeah. It must have just been absolutely horrible. Well, um, we mustn't forget the animals that were leaving deposits it, along exactly. the way as well. It, it was, you know, it was uh, the animals that are, you know, of course, everyone was riding a horse or they were mm-hmm. using oxen, uh, but there were also things like stray pigs just running around the mm-hmm. city, you know. Um, so yeah, there there was waste in that sense, but there was just, you know, refuse. 
um, there were constant articles I came across about how, you know, there was no trash pickup like we have nowadays, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so if there was an open lot or a back alley, people just threw their garbage back there. That was how they got rid of things. Mm -hmm. So it must have been very, very pungent, <laughs> and it must have been uh, quite an eyesore for the most part as well. You, you didn't mention one other thing that was going on, a little event called the Gold Rush. And the a Gold lot of, Rush, A lot exactly. of people were coming through to, to, to head farther west. Yeah, so on top of the strain that the city was already yeah. experiencing, uh, they just, you know, in 1848, uh, they discover gold out in California. And it takes a while for that to be verified. Uh, and But once people back east uh, found out that there was indeed gold, everyone wanted to head west. And again, St. Louis is right in the way. Uh, and they're coming through. And this... Uh, what again put strain on the city, but it also made a lot of people rich. There was a lot of merchants here that, you know, sure. uh, capitalized on that. And, um, you know, there were camps, essentially, that were set up outside the city of, of St. Louis, all along the edges of, of the city, um, where people were waiting for their steamboats or they were waiting to take the trails out west. Uh, and they were buying their provisions here. And it Made a lot of people rich. So. Well, all of those people in one place, crowded under filthy conditions, the the place was ripe for pestilence. It was definitely ripe, but that's right. <laughs> More ways than one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, yes. So you had a, a lot of water that was lying around in the streets. You had, um, you know, people might not realize there was actually a large body of water downtown in, in St. Louis, essentially where Union station is mm -hmm. now. It was called Chateau's Pond. Mm -hmm. It was a man-made lake. <clears throat> it was a sizable uh, uh, body of water. And for years, it had been a stream and a lake where people fished and bathed and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, as I said before, this was the time of the Industrial Revolution. And that those factories were just beginning to, uh, to be built all in, in St. Louis. And a number of them were built along the edge of the pond, and they were using it as, a, as an waste dump, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so you had this industrial waste that's being uh, poured into, the, into Chateau's Pond. But on top of that, um, there was the unfortunate circumstance that in Europe, the cholera epidemic had started mm -hmm. again. Uh, there had been, uh, it, it became a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic, and uh, all these immigrant ships that were coming over from Europe uh, are, you know, unknowingly taking the disease with them. And it hits New Orleans first, essentially in late 1848, and it comes up the river. It spreads up the river. Uh, it is a... Um, it's a waterborne disease in many ways. Um, they didn't know that then. And they had no idea. Uh, the medicine was not much different from medieval medicine, really, uh, at this time. Uh, they had no sense of what was called germ theory, that germs ever you know, even existed. No, yeah. And so bacteria was completely foreign to them. And there was all kinds of crazy ideas about what actually caused the cholera. Mm -hmm. Uh, the most common was something that had existed from the time of the ancient Greeks was that it was bad air. You know, it was just that, that smelly, putrid air. You breathe it in, and, and it's going to disrupt your 
health. It's going to disrupt your disrupt your system. And so, um, one of the ways that they tried to com, uh, combat the cholera was to burn things that they thought would purify the air. Mm-hmm. The only thing is, purifying is a very relative term because they're burning sulfur, they're burning tar. Um, and so each night, uh, as the streets uh, kind of shut down for the evening, they would burn these barrels. Uh, the city must have been it, it must have been unbelievable. They, they did have a dress rehearsal for the 1849 cholera epidemic uh, about a generation earlier, 17, 18 years prior. To- yeah, yeah. The the cholera first uh, shows up in St. Louis in 1833. Mm. Uh, there were far fewer deaths, obviously, because the population was so much uh, smaller. Uh, but it did allow some of the physicians that were still, you know, alive in 1849. Mm. It gave them that prior experience. Uh, one of the um, interesting things uh, about um, their experiences and what they how that what they learned uh, to overcome the cholera or to treat the cholera, I should say, is that uh, many of them prescribed tea. You know, they mm-hmm. told people to drink tea and. They noticed that this did help. Well, it helps because cholera essentially kills through dehydration. Mm-hmm. You use you lose all your fluids, and you lose it in a very uh, short amount of time. Well, they were rehydrating people. They didn't really even know that, mm-hmm. but they had stumbled across this years before, and um, and despite the fact that there were as you can imagine, all this quackery was going on, or people just taking shots in the dark. Um, it was things, simple things like just giving people hot tea that would essentially help them, cure them. How many people, or do we actually know how many people died as a result of the 1849 epidemic? Well, you know, we have the official number, which is around 4,500 people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's really no way of truly understanding uh, because one, uh, people were passing through the city, you know, and they would, they would contract it here and then they would leave the city and they mm-hmm. would die elsewhere. Um, or um, there were certainly groups, uh, certainly some of the immigrant groups and so forth that were probably way un- underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, often it's been said that at least 10 percent of the population died and that's, and that's, um, accurate as far as we know, but it was probably a much higher number. I've seen estimates that ten thousand might be realistic. Yeah, yeah. and that's that is certainly something that could be true. One of the uh, <laughs> today it's it's humorous, I guess, but uh, I, I found it so in reading your book. One of the the things that happened during this time was. The city fathers, the city leaders got out of Dodge. When they saw this happening, they just left and left left the civilians to run the place. Exactly. And that was one of the most shocking things that I discovered uh, when I was doing this research is that (laughs) um, when things uh, became truly um, dangerous and uh, it looked like the city was just – and the disease was just overtaking everything – the city council essentially gave power to this committee of public health, mm-hmm. and then they left, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of the mayor, Mayor Barry, uh, who uh, really is one of the heroes of the story because he stays and uh, he works with the committee of public health and keeps the city 
operating, essentially, while so many other people, yeah, simply left town mm-hmm. because they were so fearful. Were they still uh, uh, using uh, tea to, as kind of a remedy in 1849 as they did earlier, or or how else were they treating these people? Yeah, the, the tea uh, was something, you know, they would... Uh, um, uh, prescribed camphor tea and things like that. But there were other bizarre um, additions they would make, like capucin, which is like the oil in hot peppers. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some people that added things like gunpowder to, <laughs> to these remedies. Um, just, just very unusual uh, uh, concoctions. But again, because they had these water bases to them, it, you know, it, it essentially would help the people out. And it was just ironically a few years later, I guess it was in Britain, where they discovered that human waste contaminating the water basically is what, what the cause of yes. the cholera was. Yeah. Too late for too too uh, late for St. Louis. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it essentially was, and. Uh, uh, and and that explains uh, why there was such a uh, high mortality rate among women and children is because of this, you know, changing diapers and things sure. like that. Yeah. We've got to take a break. We're talking with Christopher Allen Gordon. He is the director of library and collections with the Missouri Historical Society and the author of Fire, Pestilence, and Death, St. Louis, 1849. That's what we're talking about. We'll come back and continue the conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back to our conversation with Christopher Allen Gordon, the author of Fire, Pestilence, and Death in St. Louis, 1849. Uh, Well, we've covered the cholera epidemic. (laughs) Let's move on to the next event of 1849. You mentioned earlier that that fire was uh, sometimes thought to be a possible uh, means of cleaning the air and ridding it of disease, bacteria, and what have you. Well, we had a dilly in 1849. Do we know what caused that fire? Well, not exactly. Um, there, it certainly could have been accidental. Uh, there is some evidence that suggests that it was actually intentionally set. It was an arson that was set for the sake of uh, collecting insurance on a on a, one of the steamboats. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it begins down at the levee, and the levee was, you know, it was the center of the city essentially in terms of commerce and business. Uh, the steamboats were densely packed for about a mile uh, along the on, along the levee, and so when you had something like a, a fire breakout, it's very easily for the for it to spread. And um, steamboats were known for being tinder boxes for the most part. The you know the wood would dry out very quickly. Uh, the average age of a steamboat was about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a, a steamboat that was actually parked down on the levee um, called the White Cloud. It had been sitting there for a few days, uh, not running um, for various reasons. And uh, a fire breaks out uh, on one of the upper decks, internal cabins, and um, it spread quickly through the through the steamboat, and it sets one of the other boats uh, on fire that immediately adjacent. And uh, it was at that point, uh, not long after that point, it seems like a, a, a good, uh, um, you know, pretty steady breeze picks up. Uh, and it was blowing from the northeast, 
um, which was not good because that was blowing directly towards uh, the city, um, toward the buildings. Uh, St. Louis was a very busy port. It was the second largest port on the Mississippi next to New Orleans. And so these warehouses that were along the, the levee would fill up very quickly, so much so that they often had to put the freight on the levee itself. And these are things like bales of cotton, bales of hemp. Um, there were <laughs> there were barrels of bacon that, that were sitting out there. You know, it was it was like a, a perfect tinder for for a fire. What what was the actual scope of the damage? Do we know how many boats, for instance, or how many warehouses? I mean, the whole riverfront was just basically gone when it was exactly. Over, it? it was it was some twenty three boats in all. Uh, because you know, not only are they were they stacked or moored, I should say, so close together, but the the Edward Bates, the boat that was immediately adjacent to the White Cloud, it breaks away and it, it essentially is taken by the current and it starts crashing into all these other boats, spilling hot embers onto them and so forth. So it's spreading that way, and then, like I said, the wind's blowing it inward. Uh, and in the end, something like 450 buildings are burned to the ground. Fatalities? That is one of the most amazing things about this. Um, there were very few actual fatalities, uh, a handful really. And um, I guess that is the um, – uh, I guess that was the work of the firemen in some sense because the, the alarms went out very uh, quickly after the fire was discovered. Uh, they're ringing their bells. People, of course, are all uh, seeing the, all 10 fire companies that existed at that time come rushing out. And so people were actually uh, able to get ahead of the fire for the most part. Well, you mentioned firemen. Uh, that's an interesting part of the story too because there was no fire department. That's right. Uh, there were there was no municipal fire department. Everything was uh, in terms of fire protection in the city of St. Louis. There were ten private fire companies, and these fire companies were a cross between a fire department and a fraternal organization. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it, these guys are are they're really the the heroes. Um, of the city, not only because uh, of the work they did to fight the fire and fires in the city all the time, um, but most people don't realize that they also took up the job of uh, of caring for people during the cholera epidemic as well. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a forgotten part of the story. There were no nurses uh, at that time, so um, that job was taken up by the firefighters and by the sisters of the various religious orders. Mm-hmm. And they put themselves in great risk, obviously, every day in both uh, positions. How did they fight the fire? Was it a, a, a bucket brigade or did they have anything approaching you know, reasonable firefighting equipment? Well, they had uh, fire engines, what they called fire engines, mm-hmm. pumper engines uh, at that time, all hand pumped, of course, uh, essentially wagons with, <clears throat> with these apparatus on the back. Um, they had hoses that they could hook up to the city's water system, um, which was horribly inadequate and actually gave out halfway through the fire. Um, yes, but they were they were employing the the bucket brigades and everything else. At one point, uh, you know, the, the fire obviously overwhelmed uh, these uh, groups of men. 
um, you know, they, they could not, they realized they could not fight it alone. So they began um, employing volunteers for the most part. And at one point, uh, it's estimated up to a thousand men were fighting this fire in the city. And yeah, they're employing buckets, they're using wet blankets, anything they, they could find. And, and blowing up buildings along the way for, to create fire breaks so the fire could not spread. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, if there's one individual that stands out, of course, in, in the fire story, it's, it's Thomas Targi, uh, who was the, uh, the captain of the Missouri Fire Company. And uh, it is his idea, his plan, essentially, to create this fire break. And, uh, you know, we, it's so hard to imagine the scene. It just must mm-hmm. have been uh, incredible. You know, you have a situation where the air is just saturated with uh, sparks and burning embers flying all around in this heavy wind and roaring of the fire. And this individual picks up barrels of gunpowder and runs <laughs> through the city. To, to blow up these buildings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, he, he sacrificed his life, but it worked. Boy, your description of uh, what they found of him after the explosion that took his life was really quite remarkable and ghastly. Yeah, it, yeah. it was, uh, um, as, as you can imagine, anyone that's holding a, uh, a barrel of gunpowder that goes off prematurely, um, it's not going to be pretty. And, uh, yeah. And he had a touching scene in the book, uh, him saying goodbye to his wife before going out to fight the fire. Exactly. He um, he knew he knew the danger, obviously, and uh, he goes home and and uh, uh, according to the story, uh, yeah. <laughs> he asks his per- his wife's permission, and, and well, she don't said, "Don't we yes. all?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, and you know he essentially kisses his wife and, and kids goodbye, and, and then he goes off, uh, and uh, and you know has a tragic ending. What what uh, were the papers saying in the days immediately after the fire? Were they saying that we're we're done, the city is done, anything like that? No, it was just the opposite. It was um, it was just the spirit of we're going to rebuild, mm-hmm. we're going to rise from the ashes, and. Uh, I think that's that's one of the the real takeaways from this book is, you know, this was this is really a book about survival. It's a it's a book about overcoming, and uh, and the people uh, certainly had that spirit. You know, they immediately after the fire, what they called the burnt district, they began to clean up and rebuild, and. Um, and, and, you know, you have to really admire them for pressing on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you think about it, you think, well, you know, life was, uh, was often tragic in the, at this time. And if, if everyone had given up, you know, certainly the city and this country would not have progressed. You know, they had to have that spirit. Yeah, well, it's certainly good to hear that uh, our ancestors <laughs> reacted in this way. I've got a couple of emails here I'd like to read and, and invite uh, listeners who have questions about this period to give us a call if you'd like to join the conversation. 382-8255 is the number. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org or a tweet at STL on air. Uh, Connor writes, I am a teacher at Clayton High School. I teach a social studies elective called History of St. Louis. I teach about the Great Fire of 1849, wondering if St. Louis had experienced any large calamities like it before that year. No, actually. Um, 
there was, you know, other than the 1833 cholera epidemic, uh, things had been relatively quiet. Uh, you know, there there were certainly uh, fires in the city and things like that. Um, fire uh, steamboats had caught fire down on the levee and and different situations, but there was never anything of that size, uh, anything that enormous that had ever happened. Uh, uh, Mary O'Reilly wants to take us back to the cholera part of the story. She writes, did you happen to find any mention of Thomas O'Reilly, MD, newly minted physician and new arrival from Ireland? He was instrumental in clearing up the cholera epidemic in 1849, we've always been told. Then he decided to stay instead of going on to the gold fields of California as originally intended. He was my great-grandfather. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, <clears throat> there were a number of, of physicians, actually. I, I, O'Neill doesn't uh, immediately come to mind. O'Reilly. Uh, O'Reilly, I'm sorry. O'Reilly. Um, but, uh, you know, St. Louis was fortunate and and uh, that they had a number of physicians who uh, had the, some of the previous experience, as I mentioned before, of the 1833 experience, but they were also men of science. And... Uh, they learned uh, a great deal from the 49 cholera epidemic and they actually would use that and the knowledge that they passed on to their students uh, later on. Uh, they really prepared the city for yet another cholera epidemic that happens in 1866 mm. uh, and right after the Civil War. And um, uh, so St. Louis was fortunate. They, they learned a great deal and they remembered those lessons. You know, in promoting this uh, program and your visit here today, I asked the question, did any good come of, uh, of this? And I'm thinking particularly of the fire. And actually, uh, it was very, very uh, – and, and, and the cholera epidemic as well – very influential in the way the, this area grew. Yeah. So, you know, the city before the fire was ramshackle in many ways. You know, the, there was, uh, you know, buildings – uh, were clustered together, t tightly close together, a lot of wood frame buildings up against brick, but the brick uh, was often a wood frame structure as well uh, to some to most degree. Um, the city really took upon itself to, to upgrade the building codes and to improve the streets and uh, to drain the swampy areas because of the, uh, the cholera. And uh, there was really this renewal that happens after 1849. And uh, as I said, you know, the, the city learned lessons and it put those lessons uh, to practice. You know, they put it in good use uh, for many generations actually. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, one of the things I, I like to point out is I really think that was the basis of St. Louis becoming a, a medical, a, a health, oh. regional health center uh, because I really think that generation remembered that and they, they supported medicine. They supported the construction of hospitals. And this went on for, you know, right through the end of the 19th century. You also point out that, that people moved westward to get to a little cleaner air and places like Kirkwood mm -hmm. uh, came into being at about this time as, as a result of that uh, kind of migration. Yeah, that, that is a direct result of 1849 is the fact that, um, you know, one of the things I don't talk about in the book simply because it is a very complicated story uh, is the fact that the railroad, the, the Pacific Railroad was chartered in 1849. And so construction begins uh, a couple years after that. And as soon as the, the rail line is, starts going west from St. Louis, uh, individuals that could afford to uh, essentially buy 
country homes uh, begin to build their homes along the railroad. And, and that serves as the germ of these communities, uh, the core of these uh, communities like Kirkwood and Webster that grow up mm-hmm. uh, because they want to get out of the city in what they feel is a more healthy environment. And as you've already indicated, the infrastructure was improved sewers and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. a direct result of that. Mm-hmm. One other point that you make in the book concerns the cemeteries that developed, the, the park-like cemetery, which was not a, mm-hmm. a feature prior to this time. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was again, uh, really kind of uh, – it was part of a national movement. There's, there's something called the rural cemetery movement that, that is going on in this country. Early part of the Victorian period when people – uh, began to see cemeteries as not just some place to bury the deceased, obviously, or their loved ones. Um, they want to. They envision a more park-like setting, and um, you know, Bell Fountain Cemetery, for instance, uh, it grows out of this uh, this movement. And they're founded, <laughs> you could say, at the right time in 1849. Uh, obviously, they needed. Uh, places to, to bury the cholera um, victims. Um, and uh, you know, they created these memorial gardens for the first time, not mm-hmm. only in St. Louis, but across the country. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, um, unfortunately, for so many people, life was short. And they wanted to be able to spend time with those that had to pass, that they hadn't had enough time mm-hmm. to spend with in life. Uh, so they would go out and they'd actually have picnics and things like that in in, in the cemetery. It was like a park. So. I, I should mention there are other things that you deal with in the book, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, about them as time allows. But I also wanted to mention the the police. You have an entire chapter talking about uh, the, the night watchman. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the fire department, there wasn't much of a police presence per se. That's right. It was uh, – for the most part, there were, there were paid um, watchmen – uh, in the city, they referred to them as police, but it was not an organized police force, and they had a rather dubious reputation. Uh, it was very political. These were all patronage jobs for the most part, and so whatever party was in power at the time, whether it be the Democrats or the Whigs, they would fight over you know who would get these appointments, mm-hmm. and then there would be constant criticism. Well, this this party and this side isn't doing a good job of of uh, policing the city. Um, but they were facing, you know, these, these policemen, these watchmen, uh, is it, really amazing when you read these stories. They're facing so many uh, situations that you see in the news today, you know. Uh, they're dealing with uh, certainly uh, an increasing amount of crime, um, not always effectively dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but at the same time, you know, you know they're uh, dealing with uh, uh, horrible instances of alcohol abuse and drug abuse, and uh, there is a lot of situations where officers were being hurt on the job. Um, it, 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 it's 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 very interesting how topical it is. You know, also the uh, something that was taking place in those days that we're familiar with today during the time of the fire. There was a lot of looting going on. This is not a new modern phenomenon. No. This takes place, I guess, whenever and always has taken place whenever there's this kind of disruption. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, interest, uh, it, it, one of the interesting things about it is uh, 
of the few fatalities that actually happened during the fire, a number of them were looters. Mm. They were people that had snuck into buildings to try to uh, pilfer whatever they could, and then they would get caught, uh, you know, in the fire. Um, but uh, there was a, and you see this uh, not only in 1849, but you see on either side of it so many riots that happened in the city as well, uh, more or less vigilante riots. And I think that was because you know, there just wasn't an effective police force to keep things under control. So the citizens would take things under their own hands. You spend considerable time in the book also talking about race relations and the, 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 the plight, if you will, of African Americans at this time. It was a it was a bad bad time to be black, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, you know, it was a time when the the laws were becoming more and more strict, uh, not only uh, for those who were enslaved, but for free persons of color as well. Uh, you know, th- the abolitionist movement was in full swing, and Missouri being a slave state, uh, this made slave owners very nervous, and uh, you know they looked on. On free persons of color with total suspicion, and they they saw them as a bad example uh, uh, to their slaves, and so uh, the law was constantly uh, becoming more and more strict as far as movement. Uh, you know, uh, these are people, you know, free persons that uh, they had to have passes to move around their own city. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, it was a horrible time. Yeah. Well, it's, that, that chapter in and of itself is, is certainly worth looking at for that part, uh, part of our history. And this, too, was the time of the, of the Dred Scott uh, decision. I mean, this was not the, exactly the year, but this was the time when all of that was beginning to unfold. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, uh, he, his uh, freedom case is, is in the court uh, already. And uh, He's spending a lot of time sitting around waiting for decisions to be made, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately. And it will be you know, essentially another eight years before those decisions were made mm-hmm. for him. The, uh, you, you go into a couple of, uh, a couple of crimes. That we, it, time won't allow us to go into detail about that. But a, a character surfaced uh, in conjunction with the trials related to these crimes, an attorney by the name of Edward Bates. And uh, let's let's talk a little bit about him because here's a guy that that history really doesn't remember very well, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yet he was quite an influential character. Tell us about Edward Bates. Yeah, so Edward Bates was uh, he was a Virginian by birth, and he comes to St. Louis uh, in the territorial days when uh, Missouri was still a territory. Uh, he has family here that are already in his 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 brother uh, was a. Uh, had been secretary of the of the uh, territory, and so he's immersed in politics pretty pretty early in his career, and uh, he's a very interesting character. He was he was an excellent attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, really makes his name for himself as a defense attorney mm-hmm. uh, in the city, and and had several high profile cases. Uh, but his uh, reputation grows that. And he becomes involved in politics to a degree that he becomes a national figure, and uh, you know his his star really starts to shine uh, after 1849 uh, because he uh, is uh, uh, very vocal on uh, trying to keep the uh, slavery question. Uh, 
trying to keep it going, but uh, he took a very moderate position. Mm -hmm. You know, he was very involved in things like the Colonization Society and so forth. Uh, and uh, when 1860 rolls around, his name is is uh, put before the Republican National Convention to be uh, the presidential nominee for 1860, and of course he's beat out by Abraham Lincoln. So. The history could have been quite different uh, yeah. had he been a little more successful at, at at that. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention, uh, and getting back to the uh, the, the slavery issue, um, some very famous names that we're familiar with today were associated and have lived throughout the uh, the decades. Skinker, O'Fallon, mm -hmm. Sappington, Bissell, Dorset, McKelvey, all very, very active uh, slave owners. Yes. Yeah, um, you know, uh, O'Fallon and, and, you know, you see these uh, names over and over. And, yes, they were uh, certainly involved in um, uh you know, these were large landowners, and uh, they were farmers, and unfortunately, they were slave owners as well. And their names live on, of course, uh, in names of towns and names of streets and roadways and all the rest of it. Yes. Well, most interesting indeed. Uh, as time winds down, um, you said you've learned a lot since you published the book. <laughs> what are some of the things in a minute and a half or so you find interesting that you wished you'd been able to include? Well, it's, you know, further descriptions. Uh, I, as I mentioned before, I wasn't able to get into the railroad mm -hmm. uh, story, and uh, which is a great story in itself. And uh, it, it, it's probably a whole book in itself. Uh, uh, the uh, but there was there's some great descriptions that I've uh, really wish I could have used. I, I just found a letter this morning, as a matter of fact, that talks about uh, this gentleman was writing to his brother, and he says um, he said I, I I don't know if I told you that I've returned to the city of mud, which of <laughs> course is referring to the streets. Sure, and uh, you know he's talking about the downpours and how the streets were just impassable. Is there uh, any plan to to perhaps do a sequel to this somehow, or what are you working on now? Well, I don't. I haven't made that decision yet, um, but I'm starting to think there may be enough for a sequel. So, well, it's fascinating stuff. It's a great read, and anyone who is interested in history, and particularly the history of this particular region, uh, should pick up the book. Um, it is called entitled "Fire, Pestilence, and Death: St. Louis, 1849." Christopher Allen Gordon, thank you so much for being with us and, and writing the book. Thank it's you. It's been a lot of fun to read and a lot of fun to talk uh, with you about that. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.